Again, glad you guys are here. My name is David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. So remember, chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation contains seven letters or messages, seven personal words to the seven churches that Jesus was, or excuse me, that John was instructed to write to. Today, we're going to look at the letter to Pergamum. Pergamum was the capital of this province. Strong, strong ties to Rome. They're actually the first city to build a temple to a living emperor. They'd done that about 120, 130 years before Revelation was written. They had this uh, strong civic sense of worshiping the emperor. Remember last week we said what that looks like is once a year you'd take a pinch of incense and you'd burn it at this temple that they had erected to the emperor and you would say Caesar is Lord. So strong civic heritage to do that. And there were also multiple temples to other Roman gods. There was a temple to Zeus, to Athena, to Dionysus, and to Asclepius, among others. So you had lots of options religiously uh, for the people in Pergamum. And then you had, again, this strong kind of political loyalty piece towards the Roman emperor. So keep that in mind as we read what Jesus says to the church In Pergamum, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with a sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with the new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Remember, we said all seven of these letters follow the same basic template. They're addressed to the angel of the church in that particular city. That's either the pastor or a guardian angel. Doesn't matter. You can pick. Then uh, Jesus is described in a way that uh, is relevant to the situation at hand. In this case, he's described as the one who holds the two-edged sword. Uh, You can imagine maybe in this setting where one of their church members, Antipas, have been executed There's probably some fear there around who actually is in control, who actually is the judge. And Jesus reminds them, hey, even if you're on the wrong side of the government, you can still be on the right side of me. And just because you're on the right side of the government doesn't necessarily mean that you're on the right side of me. And so Jesus reminds them that he's the ultimate judge. And then there's a a, a word of encouragement There's a word of correction, and we'll dive into those in a bit more detail here in a second. There's a call to repent and a warning if you don't repent. There's a a call, a command to take to heart what's being said, and there's a promise to the people who overcome that's also relevant to the church situation. In this case, it was this hidden manna and a white stone, and for us, that doesn't make a ton of sense. What I think Jesus is doing is he's inviting them to be a part of this thing called the Messianic Banquet. We've talked about that a couple of times. It's it's a picture that 
when God sends the Messiah, when he makes everything right, there's going to be this big, the picture is of a feast. In Revelation 19, it's called the wedding supper of the lamb. It's basically like the father is throwing this wedding reception, this party for his son and for the church. And Jesus is inviting them to that. Man, if you remember, that's what the Israelites lived on for 40 years in the desert. And God had told Moses to put some in a jar and put it in the Ark of the Covenant. And the tradition says that when the, ark, when the temple was destroyed in 586 B.C., Jeremiah, the prophet, took that jar and he buried it. And that it's hidden now and that when the Messiah comes and there's this big banquet, that's what they're going to eat. And that idea of a white stone in Roman society, if you got invited to certain parties or events, that, that was the invitation. It was a white rock and it would have something written on it that you would show and it would allow you in. So all of that is just to say, y'all are going to be invited to this messianic banquet. You're going to get a new name. That's again, throughout the Bible, we see God giving people new names that signal a change in their relationship with him and a change in their future. Isaiah 62, 4 may be in mind here. He's, God says to Israel, I'm going to give you a new name. You will be my delight. The name is Hevzebah. Hevzebah, not again, not a name that we use too often these days, but it's a great picture. The Lord, or excuse me, you will be my delight. So all of that is just saying you're going to be included, which again, you can imagine if you've got these guys who are living in this place and some of them are even being martyred for their faith, the assurance of knowing even if that happens to you, even if you're killed by your government, that doesn't negate the fact that you're still a part of my family and you're still going to be included in this banquet with me. We're going to dive a little bit more now into the correction and the encouragement. The encouragement is brief but significant. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, and you've remained faithful. Even when Antipas was martyred, he's the first martyr that we see mentioned in Revelation, even when he was killed for his faith, you remain faithful where in this place where Satan has his throne. I think what Jesus is referring to is the worship of the emperor, and that's why I think Antipas was killed. You wouldn't be killed because you didn't go to Zeus's temple or Athena's temple, but you could be killed. It was, that it was treasonous to not burn that incense and say, Caesar is Lord. Under this emperor, Domitian, he made it compulsory for everyone to pledge that loyalty, that loyalty oath to him. And if you didn't, you could be killed. And I think that's what happened to Antipas. He was killed because he wasn't willing to say Caesar is Lord. And I think that's what Jesus is referring to when he says where Satan has his throne. Satan as kind of the, the picture of the Antichrist, the one who is ultimately the chief enemy of Jesus, the one who ultimately is competing with God for our allegiance and loyalty. And so he says to them, that's a, you've remained faithful, and that's, that's not nothing. You're risking your life, literally, in order to remain faithful to me. And he commends them for that. And then he gives them this word of correction, but I hold a few things against you. You hold to the teachings of Balaam. So you can read about Balaam in Numbers 21 and 22 and a few chapters after that. Balaam was a pagan prophet. So think like uh, psychic and shaman kind of rolled up into one. So he, I'm going to give it, here's a tangent, Halloween week. So um, put a pin in Balaam. So there are 
We live in a supernatural world, and there are forces of good and there are forces of evil in this supernatural world. And people can tap into real spiritual power without being submitted to Jesus. Does that make sense? There are angels and there are demons, and people can tap into genuine power. It's demonic, it's dark, but it's real. And Balaam was one of those guys. He was tapped into real spiritual power, although he was not submitted to Yahweh. In our world, he was not submitted to Jesus. This week, for whatever reason, we've decided as a country that we're going to celebrate things that are dark and evil. Dress up like your favorite superhero and get candy. Do it all day long. But we've kind of gone beyond that in a lot of ways. And I don't understand it. We're dancing with the devil. We're opening ourselves up to this dark spiritual world. The enemy's chief weapon is deception. Paul says he masquerades as an angel of light. There are no pitchforks and tails on him. It's spiritual power that's masked. And we unintentionally open ourselves up to this world of hurt because we, we're not discerning in the way we kind of engage with the spiritual world. I can still remember I was in the fourth grade and I got invited to a guy's house to spend the night. And he said, we're going to watch reruns of the Cosby show. You remember that show? I was like, I'm in. And you know what he put on instead? Nightmare on Elm Street. And I was, I was 10. And so I didn't know, like, I didn't, there, this is way before cell phones. Like, there's no calling. Your, I was just there. And we, I watched this thing. I can still remember the song. One, two, Freddy's coming for you. I can remember the song. I heard it once in my whole life. And it wasn't my fault. I was just at this guy's house. The enemy doesn't play fair. I just want to encourage you this week in particular. There are dark spiritual forces, and you don't need to be scared of any of them. Jesus has overcome every single one of them. But don't be dumb. Don't be dumb. Don't open doors that need to be shut. So Balaam, he's one of those guys. There's a guy named Balak. He's the king of Moab. And he says to Balaam, I'm scared of the Israelites. Will you come and curse them? And if you curse them, then I'll be able to beat them in a battle because I'm scared of them. And so Balaam comes to try to curse the Israelites. And, and multiple times, at least four times, he tries to curse the Israelites. And what comes out of his mouth is a blessing for the Israelites. God won't let him curse them. And so Balak obviously is frustrated because he's paid Balaam to curse the Israelites and all he's doing is blessing them. And so what Balaam says is, listen, this isn't working, do this instead. Use your women to seduce the Israelite men. And after the Israelite men sleep with your women, they'll be able to introduce them to your gods. And that's what happens. Balak sends his women to entice the Israelite men. They sleep with these Moabite women, and then these Moabite women lead them into the worship of false gods. What Balak couldn't do directly, God protected the Israelites. In my mind, it's like God had set up this. He was standing at the front door and said, you can't curse these guys. They're mine. And what the Israelites do is they go and they open the back door on their own through their sinful choices. They allow judgment and destruction to enter into their community because of their sinful choices. What couldn't be accomplished through a curse was accomplished through their own choice. It's devastating. And that's what Jesus says, that's what y'all are doing. Church in Pergamum, 
You're engaging in sexual immorality. You're eating food sacrificed to idols. At all of these temples, at Zeus's temple, there were sacrifices that went on 24 hours a day. It was kind of like a restaurant and a social club and a trade guild all rolled up into one. And so you would go to this place and there were shrine prostitutes and you would sleep with those prostitutes as an expression of worship, if you can imagine that. And then you would sit down and you would eat meat that had been sacrificed to Zeus or to Athena or to Dionysus. And that was just part of the culture. And if you wanted to stay in good standing with your people, and if you wanted to stay in good standing with your business, that's what you did. And what Jesus is saying to this church is, y'all are risking your lives not worshiping the emperor. And that you're remaining faithful in the face of death. And look what you're doing. You're letting people in your church who are engaging in these immoral practices on a regular basis. And I hold that against you. And you need to repent. Not everybody was engaged in those practices, but there were some who were doing so, and the church as a whole seemed to be okay. The the group, they're called the Nicolaitans. We saw them in the church to Ephesus. It was the same issue, this influence of this heretical group. And Jesus commends the Ephesian church. He says, y'all don't... Y'all hate their practices just like me. And you're not letting them get a foothold in your church. But apparently in Pergamum, they were allowing these guys to continue to be active in the church who are also engaging in these practices in these other temples. And Jesus says, if y'all don't repent, I'm going to come. And I'm going to judge those guys. And who knows what that means with the sword of my mouth. I'm going to fight against them. And I don't, I don't have a clue what that means. But he said he was coming to fight against them with the sword of his Mouth, But he says, if you remain faithful, you don't have to worry about going to those temples and participating in those feasts. I'm going to invite you to a real one. I'm going to invite you to this real one. Here's, you're going to get a stone with your name on it that's going to guarantee you entry. That's the picture there for the church in Pergamum. I can see it on some level. Maybe as a pastor, I could see me going, you know what? We live in this place and the biggest don't blaspheme, like don't shipwreck your faith. And so all of our energy is geared towards people not going in worshiping Caesar. All of our energy is geared toward don't do that. There's going to be all this pressure for you to go to this temple and burn this incense and say, Caesar is Lord. Don't. That shipwrecks your faith. That's blasphemy. Do not do that. And I could see so much of our energy and so much of our attention being devoted to that, that maybe some of this other stuff, this other stuff at Zeus's temple and Athena's temple, that's just been part of our life, to be honest with you. It's what our parents did, and it's what our grandparents did, and it's what our friends do. It's been going on forever. It's what we did before we became Christians. I could see us kind of not even recognizing the gravity of those things. We hear that and are going, what? They're having sex with prostitutes in the temple? That's so bizarre to us, but just part of what it looked like for them. It's all they knew. And I could see maybe as a pastor going, we're going to focus on not blasphemy because I don't want you to go to hell. And maybe we just say, we don't even pay attention to this. Or maybe we say, we'll deal with that later. That's a secondary issue right now. We got to shore everybody up and make sure they're not saying Caesar is Lord. I, I, I could see maybe that happening. And Jesus is saying, honestly, and hear this with grace, like, that's not good enough. That's not enough. It's great that you're remaining faithful here and you're not worshiping Caesar. This is not okay. This is not okay. 
You're engaging with the cultural gods, and that's not okay. Are there ways that we do the same thing, that we engage or worship the gods of our culture? You think we do that? We've talked, we talk sometimes about these three giants in Marietta. We can call them cultural gods. And they're not true, I don't think, for all of Marietta, but for, the, for us, they are. And there's probably other demographics in Marietta that have different struggles. But for us, I feel like these three are gods that we're prone to worship. That's just such a part of the fabric of what it means to live in and around this city. We don't even recognize it. And there may be someone who's from another culture who would look and say, you're having sex with a prostitute as an expression of worship. For they may look at some of these things that we engage in and go, what? How in the world can you think that's okay? How can you think that's okay? But it's such a part of who we are, we don't even notice it. The three that we talk about are busyness and money and superficial relationships. That's not the best word. I'm too old to say this word, but it's janky. Those are the relationships that we have. I'm too old for that. It's, it's relationships that they don't work. They don't work. And we have all three of those issues in our city, business. We don't have time to dive too deep into all of these. But many of you and, and me, busyness, it's not just like it's a badge of honor for us or a status symbol. It's a, te- it's a means of survival. We don't know how to live. If we're not busy, there's so many things that we have going on. We don't know what to do except to do them all. We live lives that are driven by expectation, by schedules, by fear. The idea of saying no is foreign to us. We can't fathom saying no. And even if we could, we don't know how to say no. You add kids into the mix and it's a whole nother layer of parental guilt, not wanting your kid to get left behind or left out. And that's how many of us live. We're so busy. We're not led by the Holy Spirit. We're driven by our schedules and by expectations and by activities. And to say, to think, I'm actually gonna say time out. I'm gonna begin to intentionally rest. I'm not talking about going on a two-week vacation once a year. I'm talking about an intentional rhythm of rest where you are regularly not being productive. For many of us, that is like, that's pie in the sky. I might as well say, yeah, you can walk, you can walk on water. And you say, that'd be easier for me. That would be easier for me than trying to figure out how to bring any level of control to my schedule, any level of sanity to my life. What the Bible says is, is rest. Rest is a command and it's also a gift. Remember creation before sin entered the world, before work was cursed, God works for six days and he creates everything that is. And on the seventh day, it says he rested from his work. He'd finished and so he rested. On the sixth day, who would he, what did he do? He made Adam and Eve. So what was Adam and Eve's first day? The seventh day. So what did they do on their first day of existence? Nothing. They didn't do anything. We see rest as a reward for working hard. We rest from work. That's not biblical. The first thing Adam and Eve do is nothing. That's what they do on the first day, and then they go to work. They work from a place of rest. It's a complete reorientation of life. 
Rest is fundamentally an expression of trust. When you're not doing anything, what you're saying is I trust that God holds everything together and not me. When you're not working, what you're saying is, God, I trust that you're gonna provide for me and not just me provide for me. When you're not doing anything, what you're saying is, God, I trust that you can take care of my family and my kids and, and me without me constantly having to be engaged and be active and be on. It is an expression of trust. The hardest thing for some of you would be to do nothing on a regular basis. That, it's Sabbath, if you like that word better. Once a week to say, today is not about being productive. It's about being with Jesus and doing things that bring me life. Rest, money. Number one stress in America right now is finances. We're, living, we're in a kind of a booming economy and we're still stressed about money. What happens when things go south? For many of us, money is the chief competition for our loyalty and allegiance to Jesus. Money purports to do all kinds of things that God says he'll do. It provides security. I'll provide you with things, what you need to live. I'll give you worth and status. I'll give you access. Money says it can do all kinds of things that Jesus says he will do for us. Again, I, to, for me, looking at where we live, it is the chief competition, if you like that word. It is, the, it's, it is our false God, mammon with a capital M. It's the one that competes the most stridently for our attention and for our allegiance. And we worry. We worry about how to get it, and we worry about how to keep it, and we worry if we have enough of it. We stress about money. The two top reasons people get divorced, money and adultery. That's, those are the top two. Again, number one stress in our country right now is financial stress. People are worried. You are, and I am. And here's what Jesus says. Here's how you combat that worry. Don't just think about money on earth. Invest your money where it can't be destroyed, where it can't be lost, where it can't be taken. Put it there. That's the only place that it's safe. It's not safe anywhere else. That's the only place it's safe. So invest it in the kingdom. How do you do that? By giving. You give. You're generous. For many of us, we get, if we give at all, we give what's left over after we've taken care of everything else. What if you flipped that and began to give first and you lived on what was left over after you'd invested in the kingdom of heaven? How do you do that? You give to things that God cares about. Give to things that God cares about. Where your treasure is, your heart will be. Your heart follows your money. One of the easiest, simplest ways, it's not easy. One of the simplest ways to reduce your financial stress is to give. And you think, that means I've got less. That's gonna create more stress. Your heart will follow your money. And if you begin to give, give to your home church, if that's this church or another church, give to foreign missions, Give to the poor. As you begin to give to those things, then your heart is gonna be drawn to those things. You're not gonna be nearly as stressed about what the stock market does. You're not gonna be nearly as stressed about the return on your portfolio. Your heart is gonna be following your money and God will take care of it. Last thing, 
This is those janky relationships. We need a better word. And this, this to me goes beyond clickishness or self-absorption. There's a spiritual dynamic in Marietta where people feel like they're not a part, even if they are. That's what makes me think it's a spiritual dynamic. I talk to people all the time who say, I, I don't have any friends. I'm like, Here's your, I can tell you who your friends are. Here's all of them. People feel left out and they're not. People feel isolated even though they're not. People feel like they can't trust anybody even though they can. People feel like they have to figure it out on their own even though they have people around them. There's this weird, again, I think it's a spiritual dynamic in our city. Honestly, no offense to anyone, I think it goes back to the old Marietta deal for sure. And I don't know all of the roots there, but there's a, which if that's you, that's okay. It's just a recognition that there's something there. The enemy uses that to create these walls of people who are in and people who are out. And it's beyond just whether you're old Marietta or not. It goes way beyond that. And it devastates community. We have a whole bunch of isolated individuals who are in competition with other isolated individuals for a limited amount of relational good. And it's devastating. People choosing to keep other folks out walking completely against God's design for us in creation. It's not good for people to be alone. And we do it all the time. We choose to live alone. And the biblical solution is super risky. It's transparency, choosing to let people see what's going on with you, and vulnerability, choosing to let people speak into what's going on with you. And what's risky is you think they could use that against me. I could get hurt. And they will. You're going to get hurt. Jesus was betrayed by one of his 12 closest friends. If it happened to him, it's going to happen to you. So go ahead and accept the fact that you're going to be hurt and choose to embrace relationships anyway. It's not good to be alone. It's better to be hurt in community. than it is to be safe and isolated. When you cut yourselves off from people, you're cutting yourselves off from one of the primary ways God wants to work in your life. He wants to work in your life directly through his spirit. He speaks to you through his written word, and he works through people. If you're not in deep, life-giving relationships with other people, you've cut off one of the major ways God wants to work in you. And you're cutting yourselves off from being a source of blessing to anyone else. Choose relationships. And again, that is not an easy thing to do. You don't have to have 100. You don't even have to have 12. But there need to be some, and they can't all be people with your last name. People who you are choosing to open yourselves up to. Walk through life with. Taking the risks of transparency and vulnerability. We worship the cultural gods in our city, and we don't even realize it. We're blinded. It's like asking a fish about water. They don't know anything else. This is what we know. It's the world that we live and move in. And we want to hear Jesus' word to us. We want to hear his word to us. We want to repent of worshiping those gods, of chasing after those idols, of allowing our lives to be driven by activities and schedules and expectations. We want to say no. We want to be led by the Holy Spirit.
which includes a regular rhythm of rest, not just an annual vacation. We want to choose to be people who are generous, who give to, to the things of the kingdom with the first of what we have, not with whatever's left over at the end, because we know that our, our hearts are going to follow our money, and we want our hearts firmly set on the things that God's heart is set on. And we're going to choose relationships, even though it's risky. We're not going to settle for superficial. We're not going to settle for isolated. We're not going to settle for exclusive. We're going to choose to break down walls in our city. We're going to political, racial, economic, social, we're going to choose to engage with people at a deep heart level, even though we're probably going to get hurt. Let's take a few minutes and pray. We're going to close with communion. The way we take communion here at Stonebridge, you'll come forward a row at a time. You'll break off a piece of bread and dip it in the juice. We'll have gluten-free communion up here and it'll, if you need that. We'll pray with you about anything that you have going on. We'll have ministry teams here in the corner, so after you take communion, you may want to stop and let them pray for you. You may have a, came in with a need. You may have a physical need. We love to pray for healing during communion time. If that's the case, the teams will anoint you with oil. They'll just put, make a cross in the backside of your hand and pray for God to heal you. It's one of the benefits of Jesus' death and resurrection. It's not, it's, there's forgiveness and there's also healing. As we enter into this time of communion, I want to take just a minute and give us an opportunity in our hearts to repent. Just, we're not gonna, nothing out loud, no raising hands or standing up, just in your heart. I want to give you an opportunity to repent. Are you chasing any of those cultural gods? Or maybe there's another one for you. So let's just ask the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, would you show us now? And you can pray this in your own heart. Are there cultural gods that I'm chasing? Am I doing something that's as offensive to you, Jesus, as thinking sex with a prostitute is worship, eating food and sacrifice to demons. something came to your mind, I would encourage you not to, don't rationalize it or justify it and don't minimize it. Just repent. God, I confess that I do this. I confess that I'm I'm a slave to busyness or whatever it is that he brought up. And don't feel like this is repentance, this isn't problem solving. So this isn't you trying to figure out how to change your life. This is just you acknowledging the places where you've fallen short. So God, I repent. I acknowledge that that's a sin. And I pray that you would forgive me of that. If you pray that, you need to know that the good news is you take communion. It's a physical, tangible reminder of the fact that your sins have been forgiven. You don't have to work anything off. 
God's not putting you in time out. He removes your sins from you as far as the east is from the west. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, which you just did, that God is faithful and that God is just, that he forgives us of all of our sins and cleanses us of all of our unrighteousness. There's no guilt in condemnation. You've been forgiven. Now the next step, and I would encourage you to pray this if you're willing, is God, you gotta help me. I don't know how to not fall back into those patterns. You may have even tried in the past to live a different way. And again, it's not about you figuring out this super strategic plan. It's about recognizing your need for grace on a daily basis and to say to the Lord, I, I, don't, I can't do this on my own and I need your grace. I need you to strengthen me in the moment. To choose righteousness, to choose Jesus. To choose to trust. Would you help me? Would you begin to strengthen that faith muscle in me so that when I'm in that moment of decision, my faith is stronger than my flesh? Even if all of this culture is pulling me in this direction, that you would give me grace to stand firm and to remain faithful. Jesus, our, our desire is to give you all of our allegiance. Nobody in this room is going to say someone else is Lord. And I'm thankful for that. And God, we also want to recognize the subtle ways that the enemy deceives us. We don't even recognize we're compromising and we are. Would you give us grace and discernment to recognize, to repent, and to stand firm in righteousness? I pray for any here who, again, may be feeling a sense of heaviness, that they would recognize as they come forward and take communion this wonderful invitation. This is kind of a taste of this banquet that you've invited us to. And anybody who wants, you've got these white stones with new names written for every, with everybody's name on them. And my prayer is that nobody walks out of here without one. So Holy Spirit, would you move in this place now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ministry teams, you guys can come and take your spot. If you're helping with communion, if you come forward as well. Kim will cue the rose. We've got about five minutes. So uh, just take communion and then go get prayer as you feel led. And Bo will dismiss us.